0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark. We're in chapter 4 of the book of Mark. <clears throat> if um, you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We've got paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Uh, It will really help you if you have a Bible open before you today. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, um, feel free to take that paperback Bible home with you and consider it our gift to you. Um, School is starting. Summer is coming to an end here at New Life. Um, Our ministries kind of go to rest for a little while in the summer, and so one thing you're going to notice is that ministries are starting to ramp up again this fall and so you're hearing lots of announcements you heard a couple today and you'll be hearing more in the coming Sundays. so i just want to uh, alert you to that a lot of things happening and uh, it's exciting i think the sign of life in our congregation a lot of things going on just want to make special mention of life groups those are coming up those have been small group ministries going on here at new life for many years And um, just want to let you know, we will have four group options, and those will be announced to you in the next couple of weeks. So life groups are coming. And thank you to all who are working so hard in organizing and uh, overseeing these ministries. All right, Mark chapter 4, we're finishing this chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 41. This morning, as we continue moving through the book of Mark, one passage at a time, Um, about a year after I arrived here at New Life as pastor back in 2005, a group of us got together and got in a van and traveled down to Biloxi, Mississippi. And the reason we went to Biloxi is to offer some relief help for those who had just experienced one of the worst hurricanes in history, Hurricane Katrina. Our denomination, the PCA, had set up some relief efforts, and so a group of us went down and just did all that we could to hand out food and help people and share the gospel. And I remember just being really overwhelmed by the devastation that we saw there in Biloxi, just standing there looking over a full city block that used to be tall buildings and seeing nothing standing any more than a couple feet high, just a pile of rubble. I remember talking <clears throat> to Biloxi residents, talking about how they saw, t- but literally like what looked to them like tidal waves coming down their streets, as the Gulf waters washed over the city. I remember talking to one person who said the water even entered his home and lifted him all the way up to his second floor ceiling, stopping just short of overcoming him and drowning him before the waters receded. It was an overwhelming storm. Category 5 hurricane, winds of up to 175 miles per hour, 1,800 people lost their lives. These kinds of storms, devastating weather events like this, just remind us of the overwhelming power of nature. And there are some who look at the world in such a way that they think that we as creatures and human beings are just simply subject to the accidental forces of nature, that we are victims of the random power of an indifferent universe. That's the way those who would reject the existence of God are kind of forced to look at the world. But what if I told you, friends, this morning that there is a person who exists who possesses power even greater than a hurricane? What if I told you that there is a living person today who is in control of the fiercest of storms? Do you know a person like that exists? And if this is news to you that there is such a person... Don't you want to know him? Wouldn't you want to have relationship with a person of that kind of power? That's what we're going to be learning about here in Mark chapter four this morning. This is going to tell us that such a person does exist. This is a very famous passage in the scriptures, one that perhaps you are familiar with, and it concerns a storm. Uh, not a hurricane, admittedly, not a storm as strong as a hurricane, but a storm strong enough to make the fishermen in this story fear for their very lives. This was indeed a fierce storm, and as they went through this storm, there was somebody with them. And at the end of the storm, they were forced to inquire Who is this? Who is this person? And this is the person that we're reading about today. So let's stand and hear the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 4, 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Spirit, would you please open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Give us ears to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, let's uh, take a look at this passage, Jesus and the storm, or more specifically, Jesus calming the storm. The first thing that I'd like us to consider here is the reality of storms, the reality of storms. Um, <clears throat> some of us here like to, to joke about how hard it is to predict the weather. Uh, when you look at weather forecasts, sometimes you'll see that there's a 100% chance of rain at a certain... Point in the day, 3 p.m., for instance, and then 3 p.m. comes, and there's no rain, and there's no storm. It's always perplexed to me. I thought you said there was a 100% chance, and now there's no rain. Um, you know, there is different kinds of storms that come into our lives, right? I think we can read about the storm today and consider the figurative significance of storms. We're not just talking about wind storms and rainstorms, but the storms of trials, trouble, sorrow, crises that enter our lives. And one thing is for sure is that there is a 100% chance of those kinds of trials entering your life. 100% chance that your life... It's going to get stormy. And that is what is described to us here in this passage. So let's take a look at what it says. Verse 35 is where the account begins. And it says, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. So here they are at the end of a long day. Evening had come. Now, something that's easy to miss as we take uh, time to look at one passage after another is to keep in mind what's happening day to day. Because Uh, everything that we've been considering over the last several weeks in this series have all been happening on one day. And going all the way back, remember the sermon about the appointing of the apostles, and remember all that we've heard about the crowds that have been following Jesus, and remember the conflict uh, about those accusing Jesus of being filled with the devil, and remember Jesus healing the man with the withered hand, and remember Jesus' family coming, thinking he's crazy, wanting to seize him, and take him back to Nazareth, and remember arguments about the Sabbath, and the telling of parables, all of that has happened on the same day. And so here we are at the end of the day, evening has come, and Jesus says basically that that's enough, let's go to the other side. So the other side in verse 35 there is a reference to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so it would have been about a five-mile trek across the Sea of Galilee, and so they get in these boats and go. Now, I want to make one point here that maybe seems like a small thing, but I think it's interesting. It's interesting to me anyway. Uh, Kind of on a side, if you look at verse 36, it says, Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, it says. There, There were other boats there. Why does Mark say that? Why does Mark tell us that, yeah, and there was this group of boats here as well? I mean, doesn't that seem like an unimportant detail? an incidental detail. We don't hear anything more about these other boats. They don't contribute to the advancement of the story. If you look at verse 38, when we see Jesus sleeping, we'll get to that in a moment, but you see that he's resting his head on a cushion. Mark mentions, mentions this, this cushion. Why? Why does he have to mention that? Sometimes when you read the Gospels, you'll see these little details that will come out that don't seem to have anything to do with the story. For instance, maybe the best example is John 21, 11, talks about the disciples throwing a net over the boat, and John tells us that they caught 153 fish. 153. I mean, why do we need to know that? Why is he including that in the account? And I think here's why. This is encouraging to me. It's because... What we're hearing and what we're reading about here is the account of genuine eyewitnesses to events that really happened. Particularly at this time in ancient writing, you don't add details like that unless it's going to advance and push forward the story, unless these details are going to show up some other time. The reason they're included here is because Peter probably in particular saw these details and related them to Mark, and Mark is just simply writing down as accurately as he can everything he knows that has happened. In other words, I think these little details—they're just marks of authenticity. They're proof that what we're reading are historical, reliable accounts of real events, and that's important to know as we continue forward in this story to see what Jesus actually does. So, verse thirty-seven, we see that the great windstorm arises. So they're in the boat; they're going across the Sea of Galilee. A big storm. Uh, suddenly comes upon them, and this is something very common in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee lies very low, a couple hundred feet below sea level, but the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by some very high mountains, and so what happens, the meteorologists tell us, is that the warm air comes up off the sea, the cold air comes up off the mountains, and when the warm and cold air collide, it develops these very fierce storms. And in fact, In verse 37, you'll notice that the word used to describe the windstorm is great. It's a great storm. Um, The Greek word there is a word I think you're all familiar with. It's mega. It was a mega storm. So remember that word, okay? A mega storm comes upon them in the boat. They're going across. The lake, and you got to imagine that the disciples might have been thinking at this time, whose idea was this to come out here? I mean, why couldn't we have just stayed on the shore where things were safe? We're in the middle of a storm. Whose idea was this? Who led us out here? Well, do you know the answer to that? Verse 35 tells us, we just looked at it a moment ago, it's Jesus who said let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus' idea. This is no mistake here. Do you think that Jesus might have known that a storm was going to occur? Do you think he was ignorant of that? I don't think so. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. What we're seeing here is Jesus leading his people into a storm. I think we can conclude two things from this. The first thing is this. If you're in a storm right now in your life, it doesn't mean you've done something bad, something wrong. Very often we think that, don't we? Things get hard in our lives, we get overwhelmed with difficulties, and we think, this is how God is getting me back for this bad thing that I did. Don't we often think that way? Now, it is true, isn't it, friends, that sometimes our own foolishness does lead us into storms. That is true. Sometimes we get into trouble because of dumb things that we do. We're driving down the road, and the gas gauge is almost empty, and the little warning light is on, and we pass that gas station, and we just don't want to stop right now, and so we keep going, and then we find ourselves running out of gas on the side of the road. That's an example of trouble, of your own making. Sometimes that happens, maybe often that happens, but there are other times, friends, when we follow Jesus faithfully, and he leads us right into the middle of a storm. So when you're following Jesus faithfully, there is no guarantee that following Jesus faithfully is going to have you avoid the storms. There's a guy named Wang Yi that you've heard about many times, a pastor in China, faithful preacher of the gospel and his commitment to the word and to his church has landed him in prison for nine years. A faithful follower of Jesus and Jesus has led him into the storm. So if you're in a hard time right now, you don't need to conclude necessarily that you've done something bad. It's always good to reflect and examine our lives and see where we may have gone wrong. But that's the first thing. But the second thing I want to show you is that if you're in a storm, it does mean that God is doing something good. That God is at work in your life. This was Jesus' idea. Jesus led his disciples into this storm. He could only have good and holy and righteous reasons for doing that. And as we look at the rest of Scripture, we can see that that is absolutely true. Romans 5 tells us we rejoice in our sufferings and the storms and the trials that we endure, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. God is at work in the midst of our trials. James 1 says something very similar. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's something good going on. God is at work. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, you don't grow by living an easy life. J.C. Ryle sums this up really well. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. This is not to minimize the pain and the heartache and the difficult of whatever storm you might be going through right now. I'm not suggesting that it makes it any easier to go through, but friends, you can know that whatever you're going through, it is not wasted. Jesus is at work. He's working it all for good. So storms are real. They're going to happen. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you is what the Scriptures also tell us. But let's go on and consider, secondly, our response to storms. Our typical response to storms. So we see the storm is raging. Verse 37 tells us about that. Uh, the waves are uh, breaking on to the boat, it says that uh, the boat is already filling with water. And uh, the disciples, they are terrified. And again, remember, these are seasoned fishermen. These are men who have been on this sea many times doing the work of uh, fishing, and they have seen it all. And so this must be a very unusual storm. They are frightened. They are terrified. They're scrambling. They don't know what to do. And what is Jesus doing? Verse 38, he's fast asleep he's just snoozing away. I mean, you can just imagine that that boat is just kind of rocking. You can imagine the wind and the noise that might be making. You can imagine the water in the boat maybe lapping up against Jesus' feet, and it doesn't even wake him up. (laughs) He is just totally asleep. Now, how can he do this? I mean, there's some different ideas about what actually is going on here. The text doesn't really tell us. We can perhaps say that Uh, The reason that he is able to sleep so soundly here is just because he trusts so much in the loving, providential care of his Father. And certainly it would be true to say that of of Jesus. Is that the reason, though, why he's sleeping so soundly here? I, I think the better answer is the reason why Jesus is sleeping is because in his humanity, he is exhausted. He is worn out. I just told you about the busy day that he has just endured. I think we get a peek here into what we call the doctrine of the incarnation, which is that God has assumed a human form in the man, Jesus Christ. That Jesus is fully God, he is divine, and as Christians we are quick to affirm that, but sometimes as Christians we are a little slower, I think, maybe to understand and appreciate all that is entailed in saying that Jesus is truly human. He was a man, a person, subject to the same frailties that all of us are subject to as human beings. He got hungry. He had to eat. He was emotional. When his friend Lazarus died, he shed tears. He cried. And he had to sleep. He got exhausted. He got tired. And the reason that he has assumed this human weakness is so, friends, he can sympathize with all of the weaknesses that you endure as a human being in this fallen world. Jesus, as the TV ad says, I see every now and then, Jesus gets you. (laughs) And that's true. He understands you. He understands your weaknesses and your frailties because he's not only God, but he's man as well. Wayne Grudem, I think, sums this up well. The fact that the infinite... Omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join Himself to a human nature forever, so that infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. At the center of the Christian faith, we have this unbelievable, miraculous declaration that God has become man. We're seeing something here of Jesus' humanity as he sleeps soundly, exhausted in the storm. Well, how do the disciples respond? They see Jesus sleeping. They're not sleeping. They are on high alert. And so verse 38, we see that they wake him up. Uh, They go and shake him in the shoulder or whatever and uh, get him awake and What we see there in verse 38 is what they say to him as they're waking him up. They're saying, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care, Jesus, that we are about to die? And I wonder if you have ever said that in your life as you have walked with Christ through this life or at any time in your life. Have you ever asked that question, God, do you care? Do you care about the suffering in this world? Do you care about me and all that's going on in my life right now? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever thought it? God, do you care? Um, I've told this story a a few times, I know, but uh, it was just a significant trial in my own life when I graduated from seminary in St. Louis. Uh, I had my master's degree, was ready to go find a, a place to serve as a pastor, and I went for two years without a call, and without a job. And um, that's maybe a a, a minor trial compared to what some of you are going through, but for me, it was a major trial. Uh, All my friends, colleagues at seminary, they'd gotten their jobs. They were serving in their churches. I was working at Schnuck's grocery store. And I remember wondering, does God care about me? More specifically, I remember thinking, is God asleep Because I was convinced that God had led me to St. Louis to go to Covenant Seminary to prepare for the ministry. I was convinced it was His idea. He led me there. And then after I got there and did my work, it looked to me like He had abandoned me. He was gone. He either had something more busy to do or He was asleep at the wheel. And this is how we often respond, isn't it, to the trials and the difficulties that come into our lives. We ask, God, do you care? We might say things like this. We say, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't allow me to be single. If you really loved me, you wouldn't allow this illness in my life. If you really loved me, you wouldn't have had my marriage fail. You wouldn't have allowed my boyfriend to break up with me. If you really loved me, you'd send me a friend. You wouldn't leave me so lonely. If you really loved me, you would have not allowed me to fail that exam. If you really loved me, you would have allowed me to get into that college or get that job that I've been longing for and wanting. Have you ever asked those kinds of questions? If you really love me, God, you would do these things. Where are you? Are you asleep? Here's what Jesus would say to you. I think he would say the same thing to you today that he said to the disciples in this story in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Do you not know the God that you serve? Do you not know the one who is in control of all things? Have you forgotten that God loves you and that all that He does is good, that He's committed to your growth and grace, that the Scriptures declare that He has not forgotten you? Do you not know that? Have you forgotten? I think Jesus would say, never promised a stormless life. Never said that it would be sunny and 75 degrees all your life. The storms will come. And as Jesus says later in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So this is how we respond very often to our storms. But the last thing we see is Jesus' rebuke of the storm. Jesus' rebuke of the storm. Verse 39 As the disciples have shaken him awake and asked him this question, Jesus wakes up, and um, perhaps he stands up in in the boat. We don't know, but um, a couple of things we notice that Jesus doesn't do as he is about to do this very miraculous thing. He doesn't get out like a magic wand (laughs) to perform this magical trick. He doesn't say abracadabra. Um, He doesn't even call on any higher power. All he does is speak. And he says to the storm, Peace, be still, in verse 39. Basically, he says to the storm, Be quiet. Um, You know, that's the way I talk to my dog. The way I talk to my dog is the way Jesus is speaking to the sea. But the difference is, when I talk to my barking dog and tell him to be quiet, he keeps barking. But when Jesus speaks to the sea, a great calm comes over it. Verse 39, a great calm. And there's that word again, great. The the word there for great in in, in the Greek is, is mega. There was a mega storm, and now there's mega calm. Because Jesus spoke the word. Peace, be quiet. And now we see, here he is. This is the one who is stronger than the sea and the wind. The one who is in control of all forces of nature. The one who directs the hurricane wherever it will go. And the one who brings it to an end according to his sovereign will. He's standing there in the boat with the disciples. And so that might lead to what is more stunning. is not just what happened. Jesus quieting the storm. But maybe what is more stunning or interesting is the reaction of the disciples. (laughs) Because they were so afraid of the storm, now the storm has been quieted, so now they're at peace, right? Now They're perfectly at rest. Everything's good. They're smiling, laughing, and joking. No, that's not what happens. You look at verse 41, and it says, they were filled with great fear. And there's that word one more time. Great. A great storm And then Jesus comes and brings a great quiet, and now the disciples are in great fear. Mega storm, mega quiet, mega fear. And who are they afraid of at this point? They're not afraid of the storm, friends. They're afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of this person standing in the boat with them, and that's why they say at the end, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This, again, is what Mark is constantly trying to get us to ask. He's he's presenting Jesus to us in such a way to get us to ask, who is he? Who is Jesus? He wants you to ask that question, and he wants you to give an answer to it. Who is this? That's what the disciples are beginning to wrestle with. I mean, they thought they knew Jesus as a great teacher, but There is something else going on here, and the disciples are finally getting this as Jesus exercises his power in this way. Who is it who has authority over the sea and the wind? Only God himself. Only the creator of the universe. And what perhaps is dawning on the disciples about this time is, I think Jesus might be God and whenever in the scriptures you see people come face to face with god generally they are on their face saying get away from me i'm a sinful man they're in the presence of holiness they're in the presence of righteousness here and they are overwhelmed with fear who is this and that again is the question that i think mark would want you to ask right now who is jesus do you know who he is have you accepted who the Scriptures present to him, present him to you? Um, have you come to grips with the fact that what we're talking about here is not just a, a, a world leader, not just the beginner of a new religion, not just a great teacher, not just a moral example, that there's something bigger, greater going on here. What is being presented to us is the one that Paul describes here in Galatians Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So the question still stands, though, perhaps, does he care? Does this God care? Does does Jesus care? Does he care for you? And the answer is absolutely yes. And here's how we know that. Because the greatest storm that anybody can face, not to minimize the storms you might be going through right now in your life, the greatest storm anybody can face is the wrath of God, the condemnation of the Holy Creator of the universe. To stand before God in His holiness and in your sin with an eternity in hell ahead of you, that's the greatest storm anybody can enter. And what Jesus did in His love for you and me is He threw Himself into the storm when He went to the cross. Because it was on the cross where He endured God's wrath against sin. It was on the cross where He atoned for all of your sins. It was at the cross where he removed all of your guilt. It is at the cross where he suffered the abandonment of the Father who turned away from him. And that's why Jesus said, Why have you forsaken me? It was at the cross where Jesus went through the very worst storm so that you and I won't have to. So that we can have the assurance that we will never face the condemnation, judgment, or anger of God. And the way you know that you can be in that position, is by receiving Jesus as your Savior, believing upon His name. Not Jesus as just a great teacher or a great religious leader, but Jesus as Savior, the God-man who shed blood for sins and is raised from the dead. Is He your Savior? Have you trusted in that Jesus? Well, the good news, friends, going forward is, if you have, and this Jesus is your Savior and Lord you, you can face all the storms of your life. Um, you can face mega storms with a mega peace and a mega confidence and a mega joy because the one who calms the storms can calm your fears as well as he goes with you into all the storms of life. Praise God. Lord, your word is true and rich and wonderful. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings us, Lord. Help us to honor you well as the God of the universe, the one with all power, who is sovereign over the seas and the waves and the earth. Father, thank you so much that you have taken human form to yourself in the person of Jesus, that you might sympathize with all our weaknesses and give yourself as an atonement for our sin. We're grateful for that. Help us to live faithfully for you. In Jesus' name, amen.